Hey, good morning, everyone. Happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there. Listen, when, when we put this sermon series together over, over a year ago now, a raw prayers was set in place before I realized that Mother's Day would fall on the week titled Praying Through Pain. And my, my first thought was, oh no, we need to change the order of the sermons. But, but soon I thought, no, 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 it's actually perfect. In fact, if I were to write a job description for a Christian mom, the, the first bullet point would probably say praying through pain. So it started for, for you with the pain of morning sickness, right, moms? And then the pain of childbirth. You were praying for that little life through all the pain. And then uh, that was only to prepare you to pray through toddler uh, pain and teenage pain and college pain. Uh, praying through pain is, is a, a pretty perfect uh, subject, actually. And so not just for moms, but for all of us, we know what it means to pray through our pain. And so happy Mother's Day, and I just want to acknowledge the complexity of this day. Mother's Day for, for many of you is a really good day. You're, you're happily married, or you've had children, you generally like your children, they generally like you, uh, maybe your own mother's living and you get along with her, it's a good day for you. Uh, but for a lot of others, Mother's Day is equated with pain. Uh, for some, you don't have children because you're not married, but you would like to be married. And so this day is this painful reminder that something's missing. Or some of you are, are single and you don't care to be married, and this day feels like sort of an affront to your independent life choice. Uh, others are married, but you don't have children. Some of you have chosen that path. Others haven't. And Today, rather than being a celebration for some of you, it's a stark reminder of that void in your life. You've yearned to be a mom, but it just hasn't happened for you. And you see the, the barrage of Instagram pictures from old friends who seem to just look at their spouse and get pregnant. And it stinks. Well, in the words of Leah Campbell, who wrote a great piece on the pain of this day, she says, it's okay to stock up on Ben and Jerry's for a few, uh, you know, for days like today. It's okay uh, to be a little bitter. Uh, you're allowed to turn off your phone and disconnect. You're allowed to cry, throw things, have a little pity party. It's okay. Um, but I do want to remind you today that even though you feel alone, you're not alone. There are so many other women, even across this church, who have been through it too. And how cool would it be for those of you who have had maybe a year of disappointment to, to reach out to others in that same boat this Mother's Day. Send a card, send some flowers or chocolates, or, or yes, Ben and Jerry's, and, and just be there for each other uh, as others celebrate. And today, I hope to explore a better way of dealing with that pain but I just want to acknowledge it. Listen, there are others who are in a difficult marriage this Mother's Day, or you're, you're a stepmother and it's not been easy, or a single mom and it gets very lonely on Mother's Day. Some of you have lost your mom. Whenever this day rolls around, it reminds you of that hole in your heart. And I say all of this to remind us that for a lot of people, Mother's Day has some pain associated with it, which makes today's text perfectly relevant. I think we all have something to learn today, moms or not. And so would you find your way to Psalm 22, and you know, the heart of this series, which we're calling Raw Prayers, is just to declare our desire to be a praying church, a praying community. You know, part of what we build into the rhythm of our lives as followers of Jesus is to come to him daily in our, in our chair time and pray to him. And there's also a communal component to prayer. We gather with our life groups and we gather in rooms uh, like uh, in, in our services on the weekends and we participate in communal worship and prayer and we cry out to God together. And we're learning that the Psalms can really equip us to be a praying people. We can borrow the language of the Psalms when we run out of our own words. 
Interestingly, this is going to be modeled for us from our text today, actually by Jesus, our Savior, from the cross. When Jesus cried out in his pain, he, he was actually borrowing language from this psalm, Psalm 22. He was also making incredible messianic claims, which is, goes way beyond where we can go today into this uh, half hour. But my hope is to continue to equip us to be a praying church. And there's another gift of the Psalms that we're acknowledging here, that the Psalms give a healthy expression to our emotions. And so here's today's big idea. Bringing your pain to God will help you to heal. For many of us today, that's just what the doctor ordered. We could all use some healing from our pain. But praying a psalm is not how most of us learn to deal with our pain. To be honest, from an early age, you've probably learned some unhealthy ways to deal with your pain. The first one is maybe just to stuff it. Like, imagine the scenario. Little Johnny's dog dies when he's six years old. The dog was his constant companion, his best friend, and now the dog is gone, and Johnny's a basket case. And his parents are very caught off guard, and so they just say things like, well, don't cry, Johnny, or stop crying, or don't be so upset. What's Johnny learning? He's learning, stuff your pain. Or maybe they'll move on to the second unhealthy way, and that's to ignore it. They'll say things like, just stop thinking about it, or we'll get a new dog next week, or let's just go get some ice cream. Just ignore the whole thing. Another unhealthy coping mechanism is to distract yourself. And, and as a kid, maybe Johnny can fill that emotional void with a new pet or, or some ice cream. But as adults, the distractions become much more serious. A substance, an affair, a too pricey purchase. <laughs> Just find distraction from the pain. Later as a teenager, Johnny got dumped by his girlfriend in a humiliating way at school and he felt his eyes welling up with tears at his desk and he began to feel the attention of the room turn his way and so he just shut down. He went to a friend in the hallway to talk about it. His friend said, come on, man, you're, you're embarrassing me. Knock it off. And, and Johnny learned another way to deal with pain. It's unhealthy. It's to isolate. He learned people can't be trusted. It'll do too much damage to my image or to my reputation if people really know how I'm feeling. So I guess I'll just feel things alone. He finally breaks down and tells his parents about the breakup later, only to have them say, oh, don't worry, you know, there are other fish in the sea. You'll be better soon. Uh, just give it time. And so he learns another unhealthy method that time heals all wounds. Just wait it out. And so these unhealthy rules for dealing with pain are, are almost universally learned and accepted. And none of them are wise. Uh, but we tend to turn to them anyway. And it's led really to a bunch of people walking around in their 30s and their 50s and their 80-year-old bodies. And on the inside, they're still stuck at 12 because they never learned how to handle pain in a healthy way. And it's led most grown-ups in our world to resort to maybe the unhealthiest method of all, and that is to fake it. I'm here to declare to you today that there's a better way. And so we turn to Psalm 22, and I want to talk about praying through pain. And listen, a lot of us have, have prayer all wrong. Like, we, we think of prayer the same way we, we think of sticking a dollar bill in a vending machine and getting some candy out of it. And if the machine, you know, spits the dollar back, it didn't work, well, you have to straighten out that dollar. Anybody do this? You get all the wrinkles out, and then you stick it back in because we really want that candy. But, but God is way more than a cosmic vending machine dispensing the goodies that we ask him for. And, and prayer is way more than just trying to get God to give you things. See, God desires to connect with you on a deep personal level. And nothing allows you to reveal your true self to God like pain. 
Sometimes it's impossible to diagnose why you're facing personal sadness or tragedy, but one thing that you can know for sure, when you bring your pain to God, you're entering the perfect conditions for a deep encounter with the Almighty. And so we're trying to learn kind of what we've said is this third way of dealing with emotions, not stuffing them or faking it, and not just letting our emotions run wild either but praying through them, looking to the source of those emotions, what's causing those feelings, and then turning to the character of God and the frailty of ourselves, and then just pouring that all out back into God's presence. And so Psalm 22 is what's called a psalm of lament. You'll recognize some of the lines of this psalm because, as I said, it's what Jesus quoted from the cross. But as we go through it, I, I don't want you to get so caught up with all the familiar words and phrases that conjure up images of the Gospels and the cross that you forget the original and really continuing word of God here also applies to us in, in our pain. Now, one of the things that makes it difficult to walk through pain as a believer in Jesus is that it carries with it this tension. And you'll feel the tension as we walk through this psalm today. The tension that we feel is of holding these seemingly contradictory ideas together at the same time. So on the one hand, God seems absent in this moment. That's why the pain is here. And I still believe in God in this moment. I think it's one of the greatest and hardest contradictions of our Christian faith. What makes it hard is that it's not just theological, it's not just you know, uh, uh, theoretical, it's deeply personal. And so we gather weekly in churches and in homes and, and we go daily to our chairs and we affirm our belief in the God of the Bible, that he is real and he is good and he is powerful, he's present, that he's for us, he's our healer, he's our great redeemer. And, and we hold this truth not because we think it's a nice thing to believe, not so that we can cross our fingers and hope that it's true, no. We, we can point to demonstrations through history, through our own lives, that this is absolutely unequivocally true. I said a few weeks ago, if you ever doubt God's love for you, look at the cross and just remind yourself that Jesus did that for me. And so you're saying, I believe in God in this moment. And on the other hand, you look at the tragedy and the horror of our world and, and through human history, and you look at your own suffering, the suffering of friends around you, and you say, but, but how can that God let this happen? God seems absent in this moment too. It's the great contradiction and it causes a lot of people to abandon belief in God altogether or to deconstruct their faith or to, to create an alternate version of God that, that more fits their lived experience. So uh, just kind of dial down the expectations of who God is and that's their solution. I saw a clip of an interview with the lead singer of the, this band Imagine Dragons, a band that I tend to enjoy their music a bit. He was asked if he believed in God and he said, well, many years ago, he would start every concert with a prayer. He would ask God to be with them during the performance, to keep everyone safe, to keep everyone having a great time. And then he'd end his prayer and he'd say, in Jesus' name, amen. He said a few years later, he was praying, dear universe, and, and then closing with, you know, in the name of truth and love, amen. And now he just says, I, I, before the concert, I just go, if there's anybody or anything out there, will you help me out for this performance? Well, what's happened to him? As life goes on, he, he's adjusting and dumbing down his view of God. He hasn't found a space where he can work out that contradiction and hold it in his hands. Now, the Psalms don't perfectly solve this contradiction intellectually for us or theologically for us. What they do, though, is give us a language 
for how do you pray through that contradiction, which is why I love the psalm so much. There's just this raw honesty. So I want to give Tim Mackey some credit today. He's a founder of the Bible Project, did some great work on, on Psalm 22 with Cornerstone Congregational Church that I'm borrowing heavily from today. Now, when we think about pain and prayer, here's what typically happens. In pain, we tend to just go into request mode with our prayers, vending machine mode. This is what I need from you, God. And in fact, essayist Anne Lamott says that she has three prayers that she prays. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And help me, help me, help me. And so hardship and pain brings out the help me prayers. Now, the interesting thing about Psalm 22 and most other prayers of lament in the Psalms is that while they do contain the occasional help me request, it's usually just a tiny portion of the prayer. And so as we read through the first part of this prayer, I want you to notice how long it takes for us to get to an actual request. I think we have a lot to learn from Psalm 22. So we'll start in in verse one where you'll hear familiar language right away. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you, they cried, and they were rescued. In you, they they trusted, and they were not put to shame. But I'm a worm. I'm not a man. I'm scorned by mankind. I'm despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Okay, guys, so we're 10 verses in. Any requests yet? No, they're not. We're about to hit our first request, but it's very brief, and then we're back to statements and descriptions. So here's the first one in verse 11. It says, Be not far from me. There's the request. For trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan. They surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a a ravening and a, a roaring lion. I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax that is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death for dogs encompass me and and a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and, and, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. And so so there you see, finally, a, a few requests. Be not far off. Come to my aid. Deliver me. Save me. Okay, we're gonna pick up the rest of the chapter in a moment, but let me just pause here. Because we can already see that this model of prayer is very foreign to the way that we often pray through pain, isn't it? We'll get into why that is, but I want to talk today about how to pray through pain. And here's the first thing that we see in this prayer. Don't just ask God for things. Share your heart with him. 
See, here's what's so different in, in our approach versus the, the one in this psalm. Watch. I think the assumption that we have when we're praying in our pain is that we assume God already knows what's happening. God already knows how I feel about it. Therefore, I just need to spend this little time that I've carved out, I've devoted to prayer, telling God what he should do about it, <laughs> suggesting to him kind of specific remedies that I think will fix the problem. Meanwhile, we read a psalm like this, and the assumption of this psalm is actually 100% exactly the opposite of that. See, the assumption of the psalmist is that God already knows exactly what to do. He doesn't need any help with the solutions. He's sovereign. He's in control. And so the requests where he said, deliver me, save me, be close to me, it's just kind of like a throwaway. It's like, yeah, 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 God already knows what to do. Instead, the majority of this prayer is taken up with describing what's happening to me and then describing how I feel about it. Great lengths and great details to just processing through my feelings, my pain, my circumstances in the presence of God. And my hunch is that if we return to this kind of praying, we, we could probably save a whole lot of money on therapy. God is looking for us to not just register our requests, but to share our hearts. Why? Well, because that's what people in relationships do. And David understands this too. I want you to notice the first two words of the psalm, and, and David says them twice. He says, my God, my God. This is not a distant God. This is not a faraway God. He is praying to my God. He, he assumes relationship. He assumes caring, which is always what makes the situation at hand all the more confusing. Why have you forsaken me? Now, we don't know exactly what David was going through. It's not like last week with Psalm 3 where we knew exactly what, what was going on. But, but this, so, so this applies to anyone who has ever felt abandoned by God. He begins with how he feels, for, forsaken by one that he's in relationship with. It's personal. Listen to the language. He, he says, why are you so far from saving me? And then he says, I, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. It's the relationship with God that, that makes it so confusing. He says, I'm confused by your absence. You're my God. You know me. And so if you know that I'm crying out day and night, like it's not okay that you're silent right now. God, we, we, we go way back. And, and if, I, I know you, and I know that if you were really aware of what's happening to me, you, you'd be answering me right now. And so there's this tension. And the tension is because of the relationship. If God was a distant God, if God was a deadbeat God, <laughs> His silence wouldn't be a problem because we wouldn't expect it. But th this is the most intimate of all relationships. So David is saying, I know you care about me. And then he proceeds in verse 9 to give one of the most unique descriptions of God, really in the whole Bible. He says, you are he who took me from the womb and you made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb you have been my God. He he's describing God here as a, a tender midwife responsible for seeing David through the most vulnerable moments of his life. And now he's like, well, what, now where are you? And some of you are thinking, well, I'm, not I'm not comfortable addressing God like that. And I get it. But apparently it's one of the most healthy ways that we can interact with our creator when we're in pain. So, so the first instructive lesson from this psalm when it comes to praying our pain 
is don't just bring God your check boxes, your requests. I need you to do this and this and this and then everything will be fine. No, share your heart. Spend time describing and diagnosing and opening up your emotions to him. Here's the second. Use pain to approach God with your protests. Now, we all have images that come to our mind when I use that word protest. But biblical protest is a little different than what you probably picture. This is in the context of relationship, and so it's always respectful. But some of that same fear and pain and frustration that leads people to take to the streets at times are are here in this psalm. David begins with three protests. He says, why has the Lord forsaken me? Why has he made no attempt at saving me? And why is he not listening to my groanings? And as the questions increase in frequency and intensity, God's absence becomes just almost unbearable. In verse 2, God seems silent. In verse 6, he, he bears personal shame. In verses 12 to 21, he has withstood attacks by people. In verse 17, he faces desperate physical limitations. And so he's levying these protests to God. Here are all the things that are going on with me, God. I'm not holding anything back. And I want you to notice something else. Pain has a way of dehumanizing you and everyone around you. Notice in verse 6 where he says, I'm, I'm a worm and not a man. This phrase captures the outcome of really this oppression on David's psyche. He no longer feels like a human being. And pain has a way of dehumanizing us and also dehumanizing those who oppose us. He uses a lot of animal imageries here to describe those who are brutalizing him, bulls and dogs and lions and oxen. Now, this is pretty common in the Old Testament and in the Psalms to use vicious animals kind of as a metaphor to describe hostile situations or people. But the main point here, and and the reason he uses these metaphors, is because he's feeling like the situation is completely out of control. These are the most uncontrollable creatures he can think of. Now, in in verse 14, it's almost like language out of a horror movie. I'm poured out like water. All of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melting within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. And you get this sense that, that he's just dying. While he's still alive, he's sinking down, he's going down into the, the dust like a dead person. And, and instead of the people around him helping him, people are starting to take advantage of the situation. They're encircling him like a pack of dogs, taking the clothes right off his back. And so he's suffering. He's been abandoned. And again, I want you to see this detailed description that he's giving to God of what's happening to him and how he's feeling about it. He's making his case before God. It's only in verse 19 that he breaks away for a moment to to briefly make his requests. He says, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. And and so Psalm 22 is about to take an interesting turn in verse 22. There's kind of like a part one and a part two to this psalm. We just came through part one. But before we get to part two, there's a, there's a title of the psalm that I didn't read earlier. You'll see it in your Bible if you look at the top of the chapter. It just says, To the choir master according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. And what's cool about this is that we find out that this chapter is a song for corporate worship to be sung to, to the classic tune of 
the, the dough of the dawn, everybody's favorite. You guys remember that one? No, me neither. Nobody does. <laughs> but in the ancient world, they would have known what that meant. So it's like today at a party, you go in, you're like, hey, I wrote a party for Frank's, or I wrote a poem for Frank's 40th birthday party. I'm, I'm going to sing the lyrics now to the tune of Walk This Way, or, you know, whatever. So, so Psalm 22 was written to be sung corporately. Now, let your imagination go for just a second. Between the time David wrote these words until the time Jesus quoted them on the cross was about a thousand years. So I want you to imagine the countless number of human beings, of Hebrew men and women, who gathered in the temple and borrowed these words of David in corporate prayer and singing. And they applied these lyrics to their own pain, to their own anguish for a millennium. So this prayer is not just for David, and it's not just for Jesus on the cross. It's for anyone who has ever felt abandoned by God. There's a communal nature to it, which makes this next section all the more compelling. The third way I think we pray through pain is to let pain lead you to corporate worship. Look at verse 22. It's, it's almost jarring because David's been laying out his grievances, his emotions, his protests. And then he turns and he says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. And then he starts instructing others who are afflicted. He says, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. Then he returns to himself, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. And, and so <clears throat> David has come to this place in his anguish and in his grieving and fighting where God intervenes, God delivers. He answers his prayer. And so what does David do? Well, he gathers with the people of God and he declares his praises. You know, one of the most common instincts and also one of the most damaging instincts when you're walking through seasons of pain is to isolate, to go into your cave, to remove yourself from people. You just don't want to deal with the nonsense. You don't want to deal with the <clears throat> bad advice and the cliches and the people trying to top your story with their own story of pain. Just stay away. But it's not good to isolate. And you see, worship, not, not just individual worship, but corporate worship is a healthy outlet for your pain. And it's not only healing for you, but in the assembly, it becomes a source of faith for others. Like when I look around and I see people singing and praying and weeping, who I know are going through significant stuff, all of a sudden the church isn't some institution. It's not an organization. These songs aren't a production. People that, that I know and love, people that I'm in proximity with, real people are doing business with God and they're declaring truths about God. They're surrendering their hearts to God in worship, and it inspires me so much. It gives me faith. It brings depth and focus to our collective praise. Now, did you notice in, in 25, he says, my vows I will perform. That involved making a sacrifice and another communal gathering, which was more like a huge party. What a, what a cool culture. Like when God answers prayers, David's like, let's get together for a huge party where I can tell all my friends and families what he's done. Like, have you ever done a dinner party where you, you know, clinked your glass before serving the food and you just said, hey guys, here's why I've invited you here tonight. I, I just want to tell you about God's great faithfulness to me. Like, here's what God just brought me through. 
I thought, I thought a fitting end to that season of pain would be to have all of you guys over so that we can celebrate God's great love. How cool. I'd love to see us build in a, a practice to our uh, prayer life and corporate gatherings to just celebrate God's faithfulness. So we've said how to pray through pain. Don't just ask God for things, share your heart with him. Use pain to approach God with your protests and then let pain lead you to corporate worship. Here's the fourth instructive lesson from Psalm 22. Remember your story is part of God's bigger story of ultimate rule. So it's like now David pans out, like one of those drone shots in a movie. He's going from this little piece of the story and and the pain and the heartache and the suffering and ultimately the redemption. And he begins to zoom out and you start seeing this much bigger story. I want you to look at verse 27. He says, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you for kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship And before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Now, now beyond all of the the questioning and the, the abandonment of this psalm, there remains now this sense that God can be trusted, that the history of redemption reveals God as loyal and able to save all the nations of the earth. Even death itself, you notice cannot thwart God's ultimate purpose to save and to heal his people. And then he concludes by picturing generations upon generations, bringing this same kind of suffering and pain before the Lord and then experiencing his grace and healing and, and yes, triumph. Listen to the ending and the fitting conclusion of this song uh, on this Mother's Day, by the way. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Now, take the triumph of that moment. I want you to go back to verse one just for a second. Because I'll bet some of you resonated more with the first half of this psalm more than the second half because some of you are sitting in that tension we talked about. God seems absent in this moment and still I believe in God in this moment. But you have no idea when this deliverance is coming so that you can get to the party part. So you're sitting in, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The words of Jesus on the cross, he's quoting this verse. In fact, when, when you read the crucifixion narratives in the Gospels, where, that there are actually over 20 references and phrases and descriptions of Jesus on the cross that are connected back to the little details of this prayer in Psalm 22. Piercing of hands and feet, bones out of joint, the dividing of garments, just tons of details. And the crazy thing is that this psalm isn't overtly meant to be prophetic. It's not like Isaiah or Daniel or or these overtly prophetic prophets pointing to the coming Messiah. Psalm 22 is not predicting anything. It's just a prayer of lament. And yet Jesus himself and the gospel writers are all gravitating back to this little psalm. But why? Why is that important for us? Well, remember that we said that this was a prayer and a song for countless others during those thousands of thousand years between when David wrote it and Jesus quoted it. It had become the corporate cry of a people in their suffering, all of humanity, really. And so Jesus is taking up the suffering of David, but he's also then taking up the suffering of all who have felt the anguish of this prayer. 
And he's taking all of that suffering for all of those years and he's taking it onto himself. He's not standing at a distance. He's not giving sympathy. He's not saying, oh, that's too bad that that's all happening to you. No, he's taking all of that suffering now upon himself to the point where Jesus has become God's forsaken himself. And so he enters into it and he creates the space for us to enter into the first part of that prayer, acknowledging that we may never see the second part. That the full redemption, the full deliverance from our anguished prayers, we may never see them this side of heaven. But Jesus, taking this prayer on his lips on the cross, gives us hope. Why? Because we know that God did not despise his shame. And so we grab on to Jesus because we know that he entered into the second half of the prayer. And so we hang on to him with dear life so that we, what became true of him and his resurrection will also be true of me. And so this is David's prayer, yes. And this is Jesus' prayer, yes. But it's also meant to be our prayer as well. As we look to the big picture fulfillment of God's promises, to the bigger story that's being written, we're just gonna create some space today for you to bring your pain to God. In our physical locations, as your host comes, I just want you to take 60 to 90 seconds of silence now and allow the Spirit of God to begin to speak to you. Quiet your heart before him right now. I love you guys.